Welcome back to the Beyond Macros podcast, a show where we help you get leaner, stronger, and perform better through nutrition, movement, and the all-important art of inner work. In today's episode, I sat down with Dr. Mike T. Nelson to talk metabolic flexibility and fasting, two topics that Beyond Macros online nutrition coaching members have been asking a lot about lately. Speaking of the online nutrition coaching program, this is what was formerly called the group coaching program. But with the addition of two one-on-one calls, it has just straight up become a coaching program. If you pre-register by Monday, September 10th, you'll get $269 off with our pre-registration deal. But it ends this week and then the price goes back up. So what are you waiting for? I can guarantee this is the most coaching support you will get for the price anywhere which is why we back it up with our 60-day Beyond Confident Guarantee. If you do the work and don't get results, you can get your money back. And why are we so confident? Well, within the first 60 days, you could theoretically talk with a coach 10 times if you decide to show up. That's plenty of time to get you on track. We have members who chat with me weekly because they regularly show up for live office hours. For example, you heard from Issa last week who's made an amazing transformation, 15 pounds down and then four pounds of pure muscle. And this week, Kathleen wanted to share her experience. Before I joined the Beyond Macros group program, I had really inconsistent eating habits. I would get into cycles where I would eat healthy for a while and meal prep, but then I would fall off. I had no idea if I was eating enough or if I was eating too much for my activity level but I knew my nutrition wasn't supporting my goals of improving strength while also getting leaner. The program has really helped me by setting me up for long-term success. I've basically been forced to examine my lifestyle and habits and look for areas to make realistic changes. If I was counting macros, I would really just be on a diet, and for me, that's not sustainable. There's plenty of accountability in the group through weekly check-ins and coaching, and the support you receive through the other members in the group is outstanding. Coaches Matt and Ray are really approachable and, they're, and they've been available to answer my questions and address my concerns. In the three months I've been with the group, I've definitely gained strength in the gym and I've PR'd several of my lifts at CrossFit. I'm also more mindful about what I'm eating with regards to nutrition and how certain foods affect my performance and how I feel. Through the group, I've learned that decision fatigue is a stressor that throws off my good habits So I've gotten back into my routine of meal prepping and planning my meals in advance. So what are you waiting for? Save yourself some money and make a transformation that lasts and goes way beyond macros. Now let's dive into the episode. I met today's guest, Dr. Mike T. Nelson, in the jungles of Costa Rica at Dr. Ben House's Beginner's Mind Retreat at the oasis he built known as Flow Retreat Center. Mike is a researcher who has contributed to a number of studies I've found quite valuable. He's also an experienced practitioner, helping people with everything from movement to nutrition. You'd think as a researcher, this guy would be boring, but he shared a presentation on fasting at the retreat we were at, and if you've ever seen him give a presentation, I would describe it as falling somewhere between stand-up comedy and a lecture from your favorite college professor. With all the questions I've been getting about fasting, I wanted to share Mike, the metabolic flexibility guy's perspective. I am actually in the middle of a 24-hour fast as I record this episode because I am testing out Dr. Mike's protocol. 
Before we dive in to talk about fasting, it's important to understand metabolic flexibility, which is the ability to use whatever fuel source is available. In practice, I always like to kind of have the endpoints. So on the right end of the spectrum is, we'll just simplify it into carbs and fat for now, is how well can you use carbohydrates? Because we know that's a big advantage for performance. And even people whose only goal is body comp, what's going to drive body comp changes? Obviously, calories are going to matter, but we know that exercise is extremely important for a myriad of reasons beyond just burning fuel that I think compliance is also linked into performance, right? I mean, how many people have you ever coached that have gone to the gym day in and day out and done worse and stayed with any program? It's just, I rarely I hear one person here and there, right? Nobody wants to go to the gym and see themselves do worse all the time for years on end. So I think having a good level of performance in the gym drives exercise compliance and kind of keeps that going. And of course, if you do more work, you burn more calories, all that kind of stuff. So using carbohydrates to the highest degree is beneficial. We know if we look at a worst case scenario, uh, like McArdle's disease, where they're missing genetically an enzyme to break down glycogen, which is a stored form of carbohydrates, their exercise performance at any intensity is just utterly atrocious. They hate it. It's painful. It feels horrible. They have massive amounts of muscle breakdown. It's just not a good idea. Now, again, that's you know, two ends of an extreme spectrum. On the other end, most people are looking for you know, body composition changes. So I think teaching the body to use fat as a fuel during lower intensity work, if you get up, do an AM walk, uh, people forget that your resting metabolic rate is easily 50 to 60% of the calories that you burn per day. So I think changing your resting metabolic rate to use fat as a fuel is going to be better long term. Um, that's Debatable, but if we look at a marker of health, I think we'll realize that being able to use fat during low-intensity exercise is a good thing, probably a good marker of health. So, to review, we've got the two ends of the spectrum. Carbs and stored muscle glycogen are very important for pushing the performance end of the spectrum. Fat is a fuel source you should be running for resting metabolic rate and low-intensity activity on that end of the spectrum. What discussion of metabolic flexibility would be complete without a discussion of keto, the extreme fat end of the spectrum? The first step in the journey of this discussion is to determine why people would want to operate at this extreme fat-burning end of the spectrum. For Mike, he often brings up that if he were to get a head injury doing his favorite activity, kiteboarding, he would use a ketogenic approach to recovery. From a performance perspective, this is what he had to say about keto. Now, if you said, okay, I want to do a ketogenic diet and do a high-level endurance thing, and then we'll get to like more strength training or glycolytic stuff, my next question is, well, do you want to be competitive? Because some people just have the goal of, hey, I want to run a marathon. You know, That's been on the, the list of things I want to do with, with my life, and I don't really care what time I get. Just as long as I'm fast enough, they don't close the course down, and I can actually finish. And I'm like, hey, that's cool. You know, that's awesome. To do that, I would argue that using more fat is probably going to be to your benefit. Why? We don't need a super high level performance. We don't need you to run super fast. Yes, you need to run fast, but you can probably train you if we have enough time to use fat for a fair amount of that. Of course, you're still going to be using some carbohydrate mix also, but 
the theory there is that if I can get you to use more fat, I get away from a lot of the <clears throat> GI upset and a lot of things that could literally just ruin your race really fast. However, if you said, I want to, you know, like the people with Nike sponsor trying to break a two-hour marathon, then yes, by all means, use as many carbohydrates as humanly possible. I think this highlights where the fat-burning end of the spectrum belongs. Very low-intensity, non-competitive movement. It has its place, and performance is just not that place. Just listen to the results of this study that blocked fat metabolism in half-marathon runners. There was a study done, and I think it was uh, half-marathon runners, pretty high level. They basically gave them, I think it was a nicotinic acid, to block the use of fat as a fuel. And their times were almost the same, meaning that they're running almost entirely 100% on carbohydrates and ATP PC. And if you've ever watched the documentary Breaking 2 on YouTube, you'll understand this better. Those runners fighting to break the two-hour marathon barrier are consistently running 13.1 miles per hour for two hours. I recently did a bike trip and was mouth-breathing pedaling at 13.1 miles per hour. (sighs) That is insane. Mike has also taken part in research that looks at people's ability to use fat as a fuel source. And during one of these studies, he had a mind-blowing finding. So the studies that they did in the past was, you can go back into the 80s and 90s, they thought, well, running these long distances, this has got to be pretty much fat metabolism. And their thought was, well, let's measure some of these people and see you know, how well their body can use fat. And in some of the studies, what you find is that it's pretty variable. So a study I did, one Gadecki did, one Helges did in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, they said, I think it was like 20 to 93% variability in how well people could use fat as a fuel at rest or during low-intensity exercise. So what that means is, like in the lab I had, when we pulled people in, I had one lady, you know, she was a little bit more overweight, wasn't really an athlete, but, you know, otherwise very healthy. We put her on the treadmill, we hook her up to the metabolic cart, which will tell us what fuel she's using. And even just during a warm-up, she's using almost 100% carbohydrates. I'm like, oh, man, I screwed up the machine. I didn't calibrate it right. And I'm like, but I know I did. I'm like, dude, you know, you probably forgot. You ate breakfast this morning. We, we told you to be fasted. She's like, no, no, I was completely fasted. Huh. So, okay, come back in a week. We'll remeasure you. She's like, yeah, yeah. Comes back in a week, same thing. You know, people we measured right after her session, everything was fine there. So, for whatever reason, her body is primarily burning carbohydrates even during a low-intensity exercise. So, the thought was, Okay, so maybe there's this deficit in fatty acid oxidation, which we do know is extremely variable from one person to the next. If we can train this property, we'll, we'll create some elite athletes. So they did a whole bunch of, you know, kind of a lower carb approach. They did some fat loading. They did all these interventions. And in short, when they had them do and compete, hmm, performance wasn't any better. So then they're like, well, what are the, you know, higher level people doing for competition? Oh, they're using a lot of carbs. Okay, brilliant. We got this great idea. We're going to do the same uh, fat training. We're going to increase their fatty acid oxidation. But before the race, we're just going to give them a bunch of carbohydrates. And then they can use, you know, both fuels. They'll be metabolically flexible. Boom, we'll create these freaks and we'll be amazing. 
And they did that in the first studies and performance wasn't better. So then they're like, oh, crap, what do we do? Well, let's do muscle biopsies and make sure there's enough glycogen. Maybe we just didn't give them enough carbs in that you know, couple-day period before. So they do the muscle biopsies. Yep, glycogen is, is present at pretty high levels. You can see this even in Jeff Bullock's faster study. But performance didn't really go up. And they're like, well, what the hell? But they've got you know, high amounts of glycogen. Their fatty acid use is much higher. And what they realized was that it was primarily an access issue of using the carbohydrates to the highest degree. So if we take someone, we put them on a ketogenic, high-fat, lower-carbohydrate diet, so usually less than 50 grams of carbs, yes, your body does become more metabolically flexible on the end of using fat as a fuel. Uh, Like Jeff Bullock's faster study, they literally rewrote the textbook on what the max level of fat you can use at a you know, 70% of your max. So very, very high levels. But when they went to use carbohydrates, they couldn't, they missed, they lost some of that carbohydrate machinery because they were training without carbohydrates, right? It's like if you get really good at doing a 10 rep max, your max strength may not necessarily go up, right? Because you weren't training that specifically, so the analogy, which I stole from Dr. Peter Atia, is like you have this you know, massive tanker truck that's pulled over on the side of the road because it ran out of gas. It's not because there's no gas present. The amount is there. It's an access issue. It only has access to the small tank. It doesn't have access to the large tank that it was using to transport fuel. Mike actually used this tanker analogy during his talk in Costa Rica, and I loved it. I too thought that doing keto and then carb loading was a workaround. And this tanker visualization illuminates the reality. If your body isn't used to using carbs, it won't be very good at accessing and using carbs. That is why we do Metcons in CrossFit. You are conditioning your metabolism. We'll get to Dr. Mike's approach for creating metabolic flexibility shortly. But so far, we've mostly talked about keto and endurance performance. What about CrossFit or strength and lifting performance? Is being on the far fat end of the spectrum a good approach? So for strength training, most of what people are doing is ATP-PC, right? So that's the the high-end energy system that's only going to last about 10 seconds. And again, these are all, think of more of a dimmer switch, not an on or off. They're all variations of that. Um, Outside of that, most of it's carbohydrates, so I was at the CrossFit Games a couple of weeks ago. The running joke I had was the second year I'd been there is I'm trying to find the, the ketogenic CrossFit person who's winning. And I never found one. <laughs> um, they're using massive amounts of carbohydrates. And why? Because pretty much everything they're doing is highly glycolytic. And they're doing it day in and day out, multiple times a day. And what people forget is when you start getting that amount of fatigue, your systems of energy can kind of change a little bit. So if we go back to some of the theories of metabolic flexibility, where you want to use fat to the highest degree and also still use carbohydrates, depends on what you're doing. So if you're doing a low level of activity, to me, fat's a really good fuel for that. Why? Because you've got a whole bunch of it on your body. Even a lean athlete has a lot of fat that can be used for energy for, you know, kind of one set amount or one mole of fat compared to carbohydrates, the amount of energy you can extract out of it is about three times as high. So you can get a lot more energy from it. 
The downside is how fast can you get it? You can't get it very fast. So you're rate limited. So if we go to a sport like running a sub two marathon or CrossFit or strongman medley or whatever, where you need energy and you need it as fast as possible, fat is not going to be able to keep up with that rate of production. So although fat has a lot of potential energy, your body is very slow to use it. It might feel like we're bashing on fats here, but this is just a realistic assessment of its uses. As Mike has said, it's very important to be able to run fat metabolism for low-intensity daily activities, while carbs are superior for exercise performance. As we mentioned, a keto plus carb loading approach isn't the answer to being metabolically flexible. In fact, Dr. Mike brought up a study where bodybuilders using a targeted or cyclic ketogenic approach actually lost muscle. The takeaway was that they would have a ketogenic Monday through Friday. They would do very high carb refeeds Saturday and Sunday, but it took them to a brown Thursday, maybe Wednesday to get back into ketosis. So the theory is if it's taking you that long to, to kind of change fuel sources because protein is going to be lower, maybe you're losing muscle mass during that time. So I'm not a big fan of a cyclic ketogenic diet for performance. I've tried it off and on with years with athletes. And I mean, if you, the only people I've ever seen that do it kind of successfully were pretty top level bodybuilders who were using drugs. <laughs> so, which you can't take that and apply it to another population. Um, and even they reported that they felt like shit. <laughs> so what did Mike discover to be the secret to driving fat metabolism without doing keto and still eating the right amount of carbs to fuel performance? What is going to really drive your body to use fat as a fuel? So if we throw exercise out for now, from a metabolic standpoint, I started using fasting probably like 10 years ago now. Because what happens when a healthy person is fasting, by fasting meaning not eating anything for an extended period of time, their insulin goes down quite a bit. And at some point around 18 hours or so, depending on the population, it'll kind of flatline or it's called an, an asymptote, just kind of flattens out. So at that point, that's probably, other than exercise, the biggest metabolic hammer we have to push people to use fat. And what's fascinating is that even someone who's healthy, who hasn't fasted for 42 years of their life, is 40 pounds overweight, they could fast for 24 hours and they'd still be alive. They'd probably hate you. They'd probably overeat at the end, but they could still do it. So that machinery is still there and still can be activated, even if it's never really been used. Dr. Mike also mentions that your ability to fast is one of two self-experiments you can do to test your metabolic flexibility. Fasting would test your ability to metabolize fats. His Pop-Tart test is the way he suggests testing how your body does with carb metabolism. So on the right end of the carbohydrate spectrum, I do something I call the Pop-Tart test. <laughs> so... And you have two Pop-Tarts for breakfast and feel pretty okay for quite a while after that. You know, if you're, you know, face down and hugging your plant in the corner, laying on the floor because you feel horrible, eh, maybe you have a hard time dealing with a high influx of carbohydrates. Again, 
I get all sorts of hate mail from people that are like, oh, you're telling people to eat Pop-Tarts. Why'd you pick Pop-Tarts? You could pick 80 grams of rice instead. I'm like, well, use whatever you want. I don't care. I'm just saying that that something that's going to survive a nuclear holocaust that someone can get for 50 cents at any store, it's probably about as far end of the right end of the spectrum as you can go, right? But yeah, you can use any carb you want. But can you take in a high amount of carbs and still feel pretty good after that? If you want to get super fancy and do you know blood markers and that type of thing or continuous glucose monitoring, great. But just general feel works pretty good. In summary, these two tests give you the following information. So if you're, I handle carbs like crazy and I'm amazing at it, but man, if I don't eat for two hours, I'm going to kill someone. I would argue you probably have a little more work to do on the left end of the spectrum. You know, if you, you know, ogle a donut and feel like you're going to pass out, probably need to do a little more work with carbohydrates at that point. So let's dive into the details about when to use fasting and what the best way is to add it to your current routine. Mike gives two reasons why you might get into fasting. One is for performance, which we will cover later. The other is if your goal is to improve fat metabolism as a marker of health. And if health is your reason for fasting, this is the protocol. If that's the main reason, I tell people just pick a time period. We'll extend it out only one day per week. So typically, even someone who I have who's very adapted to fasting, I kind of go with the the Brad Pilon, Eat, Stop, Eat, where I first heard about it from. Uh, One day of 19 to 24-hour fast. Don't consume anything that has calories. Why? Because I'm really trying to drive a caloric deficit. I'm trying to drive some awareness of food. And I'm really trying to push insulin levels as low as I can to get you at least one day of upregulating the fatty acid use. And then people always ask, well, well, what about if I have coffee in the morning? I, I heard Rhonda Patrick says she doesn't like coffee because that messes with your fasting. It's like, well, and I love Rhonda. She has awesome stuff, by the way. She's great. But the reason she was talking about didn't necessarily have to do with calories per se. It's more a theory of you know longevity and autophagy and circadian signaling and things of that nature. And because a number of my coaching clients brought up the Rhonda Patrick and Sachin Panda interview, I want to play you Mike's opinion on the subject of time-restricted feeding for longevity. I would argue that some of that work is very theoretical, at least in humans. We don't have much data on that. Uh, Sachin Panda is one of the main uh, researchers. Uh, Walter Longo has got a lot of good stuff there too. So if you told me that your main goal is you want to extend your longevity as long as humanly possible. Let's just leave out for whatever reason. Then maybe you would do a water-only fast. Yeah, maybe I would concede with that. But if that makes it very hard for you to do fasting, then I'd say just don't worry about it. Because most of the people I work with, if I, if I tell them, okay, here's why we're doing fasting, go through the whole steel. And then I tell them, oh, by the way, yeah, you can't have your coffee. They're like, fuck you, I don't want to do fasting. <laughs> you know, so they're probably going to lose it at that point. So is it kind of a concession? Yeah. Do I get that worried about it? Not really. Even then with a lot of the circadian stuff, I, I'm not convinced that food is that high of a circadian regulator in humans. Uh, Frank Turk's lab did a big study on that. Their conclusion was, I think it was the biggest human study done on that, Probably not as big a driver with circadian rhythms as what we thought. Uh, in mice, however, it's massive, right? So anything about mice, they're nocturnal and all that kind of stuff too. So 
again, I think it's a concession. I think it depends on what you're um, looking at. And then I also try to think the most people I work with just don't get enough polyphenols and other compounds in anyway. So if the worst thing they're doing is drinking coffee and tea while they're doing a fast, ah, I don't really worry too much about it so far. If improving your performance through metabolic flexibility is the goal, what follows is what Dr. Mike discovered. I will warn you, it's going to be a sciencey explanation at first, but bear with it and I will define some terms as they come up. If we went back to the studies where they upregulated fatty acid use, they gave them carbohydrates back and they didn't see a performance increase. In my head, I'm going, okay, so it's an access issue. It's probably an you know, a little compound called PDH, pyruvate dehydrogenase. Uh, Stellingworth's done a bunch of work on that. It's kind of like the gatekeeper to glycolysis. Simply put, glycolysis is the process of breaking down carbohydrates for energy. This is that important energy pathway for higher intensity performance. So it gets kind of down-regulated because that pathway is not being used. So I'm like, so how, how could we get the best of both worlds? Can we do something that will upregulate fatty acid use, but will not screw with that PDH enzyme. And it so happens that fasting is appears to be just that thing. So when I have someone do like Monday, let's say, is their off day, or just do some low-level aerobic training in the morning, I usually have them do their fast on that day. Most people do better with a longer fast on a day that they're at work. They can you know have coffee in the morning skip lunch, and they can still have dinner with their family at night. So once they're adapted to it, socially, it's, it's easier for them to do. It's a day they're not really doing heavy training. So I'm trying to push insulin levels down. But I also, especially in higher level athletes, I'll still have them do this if needed. I don't want to screw with their ability to use carbohydrates the very next day. So if I take someone who's doing you know, strongman or CrossFit or something like that, and they're really working on body composition... Uh, one of the ways you can do that is by having them just add in a fast one day per week on their you know, cardio or their off day. And I've literally had people consume three, 400 grams of carbohydrates the next day, do a heavy day on Tuesday, and they're perfectly fine. Why is that? Probably because it's such short term, right? It's only 24 hours. We're not talking about weeks. And then when you fast, you do break down liver glycogen. So if you get up in the morning and you're fasted overnight, your liver glycogen is lower. Uh, blood levels of insulin generally are lower, but muscle glycogen is about the same. So muscle glycogen really only gets tapped for any type of muscular work. So even on very long or extended fasts, <clears throat> glycogen levels in the muscle can still be pretty good if they're not super active. So it's probably because that glycogen is staying there and it's a very short-term 24-hour thing that we're doing that that enzyme doesn't get down-regulated. So now what do I have? I kind of have the best of both worlds. I've got a day in a way that I can upregulate the use of fatty acids without screwing with the body's ability to use carbohydrates the very next day. So I've increase their, their metabolic flexibility, not only to fats, but you know, hopefully to carbohydrates, especially with training over the long term. I'll just throw a few of my favorite fasting tricks in the mix to wrap up this episode. And I do have my fasting achievement badges, as I've tested just about every protocol under the sun, aside from fasting longer than one week. For a 24-hour fast, 
I think about it the way I think about running a two-mile time trial. I pick a spot in the distance and tell myself, I can push myself until I get there. And then when I get there, I pick another spot in the distance and push myself until I get there. And I repeat this until I finish my two-mile sprint and lay on the ground dying. With fasting, I will usually put some non-caloric beverages throughout the day as my points in the distance. Coffee in the morning, LaCroix through the day, tea in the afternoon, and then I've made it to dinner. Nom nom, fasting done. Thanks for listening to this episode. I recorded another episode with Dr. Mike about his research into caffeine, which we will publish here in the near future. You can learn more about Dr. Mike at MikeTNelson.com. If you're a coach, he has courses available on HRV training, metabolic flexibility, and he's also a professor at the Carrick Human Performance Institute. Mike also coaches one-on-one clients, but what I would recommend is that you get on his newsletter. It's the only newsletter that I actually read every time it's sent out. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, Mike falls somewhere between stand-up comedian and your favorite college professor, and his newsletters reflect that character. And a big thanks to Josh E.C. from Canada for our first iTunes review with constructive feedback. Josh, if you're listening, want to send me an email to let me know which episodes you were referencing? I'd love to get more in-person interviews for better audio quality, but that would require a much larger podcast budget so I could travel to all my guests. If anybody has any feedback, guest recommendations, or topics you'd like to hear covered, you can also feel free to shoot me an email or reach out on Instagram. If you're still listening and you're ready to make a transformation that lasts, Go register for the Beyond Macros online coaching program at beyondmacros.com slash group. You'll save $269 if you do it by Monday and get our 60-day Beyond Confident guarantee that you will see results if you do the work. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again next week.